Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I am thrilled that my guest this week is Jin Keyu. Jin, Associate Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics and Political Science, LSE. Keyu, who I've had the pleasure of hearing speak at various conferences, has a new book out. It's called The New China Playbook, Beyond Socialism and Capitalism. It's a book that is very ambitious in its scope, full of big, big ideas that are presented very forcefully and very clearly. It tries to tackle some of the biggest and, and really thorniest issues in the Chinese economy, uh, but because of its very holistic approach, which recognizes how intertwined China's economy is, not only with its political system, but also with China's culture. The book ends up having to take on issues that go beyond what people traditionally think of as just strictly economic. It's also a very timely book. It looks at China's economy at a moment of profound transformation when Beijing is trying to implement substantial changes uh, from a focus on quantity to a focus on quality, from fossil energies to renewables, from export-dependent to more consumption-led growth, um, among many other things. It's also very timely because it arrives at such a pivotal moment in the troubled bilateral relationship between China and the United States. And so it takes on so many of these issues that are generating the friction and the heat. Today, we're going to talk all about the book. Ke Yujin, welcome to Seneca, and congratulations on the success of the book. Thank you so much, Kaiser. It's really a great pleasure to be with you and on your podcast. Well, I'm I'm very very happy that you could make the time. Uh, I know that a lot of listeners know who you are, but since this is your first time on the program, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your own story, which, after all, forms a big part of the way you frame the book, right? Uh, so, give us the, maybe the short version of your life, and then I want to ask you about your motivations in writing this particular book. Yeah, I think uh, my uh, formative a uh, ages was important for this project. I grew up in China, but I became a first exchange student to a prestigious New York high school. Uh, I had no idea that I was going to end up in the Bronx and at Horace Mann. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think the, the visionary headmaster saw China's potential in 1997. But when I went to the New York high school, whenever I told anybody I was from China, they only had three things in their mind, which is Tiananmen Square human rights and Tibet. And meanwhile, uh, we were doing all these amazing things in China on the ground, uh, taking down buildings, building up buildings, and then bidding for the Olympics, and then joining the WTO. And it just seemed like there was a huge disconnect with what the West thought about China and what's actually happening there. You know, 400 million people moving from the state sector to the private sector these kind of huge transformations were happening, and China was changing every year. And then by the time I graduated from college in the U.S., people, uh, my friends, my American friends, uh, wanted to move to China. Um, yeah. Some of them wanted to learn Chinese. And so 
all of that happened within a span of a few years from China not being well known to being the destination place for new opportunities. But then, you know, I look at what the questions that are posed to me now uh, compared to what was posed to me in 1997 and when I was only 14. They're pretty much the same in, in <laughs> many broad, uh, on the broad strokes, you know. And I think this is one of the reasons we might be getting China more wrong than we get it right if we keep on focusing on only a set of issues. I'm not saying they're not important issues, but a narrow set of issues while losing sight of this mega country of complexity and their own way of doing things. And I think outside of China, especially in the West, I can't say for the whole of the world, because I think apart from the West, there are lots of countries that understand that there's more than one model, one economic political economy model that can work, and especially work for development. Right. But I think that in, the, in the West, we have one lens, one model, and we make judgments based on that that perspective. And that's why we kept, keep getting China uh, wrong. And I think it's now it's the time where we need to get it more right than wrong and reduce the miscommunication because it's becoming one of the most um, important geopolitical macro factors in the world today. So I said that the book is really well-timed. It certainly is. But it's also extremely accessible. Um, I think that any reasonably bright undergraduate could read this and really fully grasp the ideas that you're, you're conveying there. Um, and that was very refreshing. Uh so I'm, I'm wondering who the audience was that you had in mind as you wrote it. Did you hope that the book would reach policymakers or just, you know, Aunt Myrtle in Peoria? Um, I mean, or, or the undergraduate that I'm, I'm imagining. Oh, that's a great question, Kaiser. I, I want it to be a more general public book. However, I had a challenge because there's been a wealth of scholarly uh, works that have been remarkable on the Chinese economy. And I wanted to integrate that into the book and give it more substance and depth, because I think what we're lacking in some of these discussions is the data, the evidence, mm -hmm, uh, the mm -hmm. systematic evidence, not just anecdotes. But of course, it can't be just data, it has to be complemented by stories and narratives. And this is why I think the cultural and historical perspective, even though they only take up a very small portion of the book, I think they do play a role. And helping us understand this very complex and rich country with a whole long history. But I wanted the combination of having academic rigor and something that appeals uh, to the general public in ways they can understand. My description of the one-child policy generation, of the young generation, new generation creating the Singles Day, that forms a large part of why China's saving behavior has changed and informs us of the future. So I thought a way to weave this complexity, but also very interesting scholarly work is to have elements of both. And really, like you said, to have it readily accessible, but not really just for the general public. I think policymakers, even my academic economic colleagues have found interest because, like I said, there has been this wealth of discovery of the Chinese economy based on really rigorous economic mechanisms. Yeah, like the firm level uh, survey stuff that you have in there, this mm -hmm. firm level analysis, which is, I mean, it's enormous in its scale. It's just mm -hmm. it, pretty mind blowing. Yeah, so absolutely, there is research in there that you cite that uh, sent me skirting, you know, the footnotes and looking up stuff, um, mm -hmm. which is just amazing. But besides that, I think that people who are in the business could really benefit just from, you know, having a resource like this to give to that curious undergraduate. Um, to you know, to I think it's it's. People have often asked me, you know, here, what, what book would you recommend for somebody who just really doesn't know much, hasn't 
had an economics class since you know econ 101 my freshman year of college but yeah and i think this is this is maybe the right book for that um thank you kaiser i wanted to just say um you know while you're, you're speaking about this i think there's some fascinating paradoxes and quirky features of the chinese economy which yeah. i think would interest undergrads but also policymakers you know a very basic question is why has china enjoyed the best economic performance and one of the worst uh, stock market performances. Yeah, yeah. And and are these ghost towns really, you know, uh, really for real? Um, and and I think in the West, especially, a lot of these things are seemingly irreconcilable paradoxes. But what I try to do in this book is to show that no, actually, they can coexist. Maybe they're paradoxical to the Western eye, but in China, it's always about fine tuning, balancing, being agile, finding your way either as an entrepreneur. Or as a one child, only child in a, with a highly authoritarian parents, finding your way around and um, finding your uh, ways to exert your independent free will at the same time having a certain amount of deference to authorities. You know, these kind of complexities, they, they can be grappled with. And that's what I try to do with, in the book. And I think you very much succeed. Uh, so I have to admit up front that it's hard for me to be entirely objective because just very early into the book, um, I felt kind of a, a sense of camaraderie with you. And, uh, but what I mean by that is that as somebody who's spent most of my adult life living and working in China with one foot in each world like you have, uh, trying my level best to explain those contradictions, those paradoxes that you talk about, the complexities of China to English-speaking audiences, always trying to get people to you know step into Chinese shoes and sort of see the world uh, the way that, that uh, policymakers in Beijing might. You, I think you emphasize so many of the same exact things that I would in trying to explain China, like mm. the sheer scale and rapidity of China's development, you know, just how it, that whole experience was so compressed into such a short amount of time into one lifetime, as you, as you said, mm-hmm. one, one working lifetime, really. And China's unique political economy and how that is not always easily intelligible uh, with, it doesn't work with the, the textbook sort of one-size-fits-all macroeconomic approach a, a lot of Western economists use. And we'll get into all these things, but there is another sense in which I feel a camaraderie with you, and that is that while occasionally I get attacked for being too pro-Western or too critical of Beijing, I'd say that like, probably like you, most of the time I get criticized, it's from the other side. I'm too empathetic, or I, indeed I'm an apologist uh, this, despite the fact, I mean, especially in your case, I mean, you do not hold back when you point out the problems and the failings of the Chinese system, mm-hmm. which is which makes it even more bizarre the way that, you know, you get labeled. People who, who hear you speak or read your writing have taken your courses, um, some of them still come away thinking that you're sort of too pro-Beijing. And I think inevitably, especially for people who know your, your, your parentage, uh, they'll bring up your father, Jin Liuqun. What do you what do you say to people like that? You know, it's really interesting, Kaiser. Probably like you, I get labeled on both sides uh, yeah. in China. I get labeled as too pro West, uh, and uh, sometimes in the West, I get labeled as pro China. I'm not really pro anything. I'm 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 you know I, I like to use at least to the extent I can data, but also what's really happening on the ground to mm-hmm. inform the readers and have them make their own judgment. But I think I think that the the tendency for people to think that I have many pro-China, pro-Beijing comments is that, look, you know, in the West, I think that the 
the, the lens is too too narrow, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the kind of things that they tend to report on are too so selective. Yeah. Um, it's a selective few, and it doesn't encompass the whole of China. If you want to criticize China, criticize in the right way, right? In the relevant ways, in the ways in which China can improve and add value to the world. I think there are lots of areas that uh, have failed, and I point it out in the book, and I, I find them to be the most relevant ones. But I think what I also try to do uh, in the West, uh, in Western media at least, is to overcorrect a little bit of that bias or, mm-hmm, or try to mm-hmm. you know, bring back to a more neutral standpoint. And I tend to focus on issues where the West has gotten it wrong. And that would maybe depict me as more pro-Beijing. But in reality, it's not about that. Um, in the book, there's more room and more time and more space to cover the whole. And again, maybe there is more of a focus on the things that have gone right. Because frankly, I find it quite puzzling that, you know, if the U.S. has so many things to criticize about China, and if the China system is really that bad, then what are they worried about? What are they right. worried about Chinese competition and Chinese success? Well, clearly, there must have been something that have gone right. So right. yes, in the book, I talk about a system, a very unique system of political centralization, economic decentralization, that have been especially powerful, maybe in early stages of development. And I argue that that kind of model of mobilization and state capacity um, is less effective in a new age of right. innovation and sustainability driven. But still, that economic decentralization where local officials are enabling entrepreneurs, again, iterating each model with a different iteration, being smarter every time, Maybe there's something to learn about. I mean, imagine American local officials being able to help their companies overcome a lot of barriers instead of, you know, um, putting in more barriers or throwing more rocks into the road or not not allowing them to really realize their full potential. Maybe maybe there's something to learn from. And I, I think that will continue. So um, I think to, to answer your question, um, yes, I, I am, I'm taking a particular viewpoint that tries to give a fuller picture of China. And I, I don't really see that as being pro-China or pro-West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the foundation of your book is a challenge to the idea that all economics follows a universal ironclad set of laws. You see this idea as fundamentally Western, and I, I, I think I agree. Uh, that China is different, and I agree. <laughs> you have long made the argument, and you know it's really the same way that I, I do it. I, I separate economists that I, I've worked with or that I, I read into those who get it right from those who habitually get it wrong. And the one thing that the ones who get it wrong have in common is they insist on applying, they, they think that there's this machine into which you feed numbers, you pull a lever and out comes this result. And it's devoid of any kind of connection to political economy or to culture. And uh, you bring in culture into this. And I think that that, that is, is somewhere where you're going to get some pushback within the field, although I think this is changing. What what is the state of the discipline right now as to the question of whether culture matters, whether the political system matters? Aren't we winning this? I mean, shouldn't we be winning this debate? Yeah, you know, in the economic discipline, there have been um, papers about culture and economics that have gained some traction. Obviously, political economy is a field, but political economy more uh, in the model of the West of political budget cycles, I think. Many of them understand the importance of that because of its relevance to countries like the U.S. But when it comes to a political model, uh, a political economy model of China, 
that has not gained any kind of traction uh, in these disciplines. Um, but if we think about it, you know, just um, in a more nuanced way, look, you know, economic mechanisms work, right? They work very, very well in China. It's the prime example that showcases how incentives really matter. You mm-hmm. give them incentives and people work hard and they create stuff. And consumers shop, firms innovate, and markets work. So th- that's a universal principle. And I'm not arguing against that at all. I'm actually saying that it's worked very well in China. China has some alternative mechanisms to complement it, but they, they work. However, the culture element actually also matters hugely to China. If we think about households, uh, the, the Western discipline treats individuals, households as individuals, and everyone maximizes their individual utility. But in China, there's a clear intergenerational, interhousehold dynamism and dynamics. And this is how I talk about in the book how we can re- reconcile, you know, the high real estate prices or the consumer behavior that has to do with how many children they have, the huge amount of education resources parents spend on their children, which the we're savings seeing, rate. Yeah, the yeah. savings rate. And we're seeing all that um, in real uh, economic terms. Uh, you know, think about the, the number, sheer number of highly educated young people without jobs. Urban families spend up to 30% of their income on educating one child. You cannot possibly write down an economic model that can explain this phenomenon without introducing some cultural aspects to it. And it could still be in the discipline of economics. You can just incorporate these elements and also household preferences. You know, um, the preference for state intervention is so hugely different between the East and the West. Um, and this is not just China. I think in many Eastern societies, the government's intervention and participation is not only expected, they are desirable, whereas it could be totally intolerable to other countries. And so this would be a difference in preferences. And we tend in, in economics to assume exogenous preferences. But now, you know, it's slightly digressing, but AI can actually manipulate our preferences. All of that should be taken into account of these um, models. And then if you talk about firms, yes, firms maximize their profits, but they all have to balance the relationship with local officials and they have to, you know, kind of deal with all these macro environmental factors that are not incorporated in the model and that can, can become very prominent in the Chinese economy, even if they're not in the U.S. So to answer your question about the discipline, the Western economic discipline still has three models, let's say, mm-hmm. in macro. And it's really hard to reinvent something or come up with new features that become mainstream. But we're doing our part. So many of our research papers, my research papers, have to do with China and the world. But again, using their mainstream models, incorporate something new. And I think it does a pretty okay job. So I think the discipline is open to understanding China better because it is a very unique phenomenon. But again, our, our hands are very tied. So this is why I enjoyed the book, because I can be a little bit looser and be more <laughs> creative <laughs> in the process. So, Kuyu, I can easily imagine somebody just who would accept these claims that you make about households and firms and culture, you know, that, that culture is a major factor in economic decision-making and economic behavior. But then that same person not being willing to follow you further into claims about culture and politics because, you know, you do say that China's national conditions, its culture, make it better suited to its particular system of government. 
I'm sure you're going to get pushback or if you haven't already on that claim. I mean, you doubtless recalled it in the 1990s during the ascendancy of the, the five tigers. Um, there was this whole discourse. You were very little at the time, but I remember this uh, around, you know, Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew and other people about Asian values. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think it's fair to say that at least in the Anglosphere in, in Western discourse, uh, the critics of that idea won out, uh, and you know, Asian values became something of a punchline, right? And, and this isn't surprising, given the kind of you know, kind of end of history triumphalism that was in the air at that time in the '90s. But is it time for us to renew that debate? Mm-hmm. Do you think there might be maybe more receptivity to this idea now that we have this example of China, uh, and maybe if it were presented in a way that was just less reductionist, less yeah. essentialist? Uh, than the sweeping claims that we saw in, in the 90s. Uh, Kaiser, I think this kind of pushback is the right pushback to have. And and honestly, mm-hmm. I'm not an anthropologist, and I haven't studied this in any level of detail to make me any kind of authority on this issue uh, between culture and economics. And I think this could be a very interesting interdisciplinary field that we should do more work on. But just from my casual observations, well, values do change as well, and they might be slow moving. Yeah, I, I think one of the key points I make in the book is actually culture doesn't necessarily explain some major economic factor, like the saving rate. People always thought it was because Asians save more. Well, I, I, I go into careful detail as to why that was not the primary fundamental factor explaining mm-hmm. Chinese saving rate, because it's very slow moving. Um, values, you know, cultural values don't change that much, whereas economic conditions do. And we tend to exploit that as economists to identify some causal relationships. Um, but I think values can change over time. And if we're talking about a 30, 40 year horizon, I think, and new generational shifts, I think they do. If you look at uh, the Chinese new generation, again, a theme in the book, uh, their values have changed. Uh, you know, they they borrow and they like to consume and they like lifestyle so utterly incomprehensible to their parents. I can tell you yeah. that as an example myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the parents' generation went through the Cultural Revolution and the Great Famine and the vicissitudes that China has gone over and a huge amount of turmoil. They're inevitably risk-averse, very pragmatic. And the new generation are inventing their own new local life, even though they're facing their own challenges with unemployment, etc. But still, their their outlook on the world, on their own future are very different. And as surveys show, they actually, their values converge more with the new generations in other parts of the world that Absolutely. than the other generations. So yes, you know, WTO has not made China uh, want to have an electoral democracy but, but, you know, the new generation care about social issues like inequality to animal rights in Africa, and they care about diversity. You know, they're seeking ways to exert their individualism and uh, embrace identities in their communities. This is not at all what the previous generation were interested in doing. That's right. Um, so I think, I think there could be a convergence of universal values, and I do fundamentally believe that there are universal values. I guess my point about the cultural aspect is um, I think the most dominant economic, macroeconomic uh, phenomenon are not so much explained by culture per se, but I think there are um, the kind of quirky aspects of the Chinese economy, the things that we don't understand or we're 
easy to brush aside and have a reductionist view could have a cultural element to that. But we should watch for more convergence and 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 really take advantage of that positive force of the new generation where they think about collaboration and they think about, you know, the environment and all these things. I think it's a good bridge between China and the rest of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I do want to emphasize to the, the listeners that that this whole theme of generational change is one of the, the leitmotifs that runs through the entire book. Uh, it's a really, really interesting one. That generation that you came up in, you know, I, I'm from the, the Liu Linghao, the, the, the Gen X of China, or the late boomers of China. Um, the millennials and then the Gen Z, they're, they're very different creatures. They didn't know the privation and the hardship. They saw it, but they didn't experience it at close quarters. They have known all that meteoric growth. You know, I, I, one friend of mine once described them as equal parts entitlement and empowerment. Which is kind of an I thought exactly. that sounded right sounded right to me, yeah. So, um, I think you should, you know, anyone should, who reads this book, I think will get a good idea of what to expect in the next decade as people who came up, you know, in your generation now kind of take over. Yeah, kind of. If I can add, also, I mentioned some of the economic trends of the new generation that any company that wants to do in business in China needs to understand thoroughly, right? But it would be really interesting to see what the political outlook is. Again, yeah. to your point, uh, I'm happy to receive pushback on this cultural historical element. I don't take any of these things as hard set or unchangeable. I think there is some very important globalization force, even though I think there's a lot of superficial globalization convergence in terms of what we wear, what we like to eat, and in terms of travel. Um, but I still believe that these kind of values can be challenged. And and smart, young, bright uh Chinese generation will question, will start to question the status quo. Absolutely. And question, is this the right system? Is this, uh, you know, centered around the right kind of mission? Do they subscribe to that? I think they will start to question. But I still have to say, it's not obvious that they will look at the West and look at democracies transposed on other soil and find that as paragons of success or inspiration. Right? right, it hasn't right. really served them as paragons of inspiration. So I'm not, I'm not saying that this kind of political system or political economy system, although lots to improve, are are the ones that will and most likely stay. I'm not, I'm not arguing for that. But it's also like, well, first of all, how much appetite do they have for radical overhauls and turmoil? I think the current generation Chinese certainly do not have much appetite for turmoil and instability. No, indeed. Maybe the new generation, right, have a different way of thinking about that. But a radical overhaul to become what? It's not like they can look around the world and say, okay, that's an obvious alternative. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think that part of the problem with the way that the argument, the cultural argument used to be framed, the Asian values framed, framing of it was they, they kind of posited these eternal, unchanging right. Asian values, which is just nonsense. It's right. patent nonsense. Exactly. And of course it deserved to be, yeah. But, you know, if you if you think, I, I think in terms of, you know, gravity or inertia, right? Uh, culture, history, it, it kind of, it, it limits the rate of change possible in an amount of time, but it doesn't make change either impossible or, mm-hmm. or not desirable. And like you, I do believe that you know, there is a, a set of values toward which we should all be moving and, and toward which every Chinese person I know wants eventually to move. Of course, everyone wants 
a society that is more, you know, deliberative and participatory and responsive and, right. you know, plural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway. all that. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's get to the heart of, of, of the book, which I think maybe is the key to understanding Chinese political economy and how it functions. And that is what you call the mayor economy. Uh-huh. Uh, this is not your coinage, I don't think, but no. I, actually, I couldn't find who who first started calling it the mayor economy. I, I've just been hearing it in China, and uh, who knows yeah. where it came from originally. Is it just Shijiangjingji or what exactly Shijiangjingji? Yeah. So I guess it was coined in Chinese first and then translated into English. Because I mean, yeah, yeah, well, always all the creative coinage is always in China first. <laughs> so don't yeah. say that Chinese people are not creative or inventive. They are. They really are. Exactly. Exactly. It's a big topic, of course, but it's it's really so central to your argument that maybe it's worth explaining at some length. So, how would you explain what the mayor economy is, and what are or what are its pros and, and cons? Well, people tend to think about China as having a very centralized approach with a very dominant state, but I'd say that that would be true for political centralization, whereas the economic model is highly decentralized. There is actually a lot of autonomy passed down. To the local officials, I, you know, we call them mayors, but they could be provincial governors or party secretaries or uh, village chiefs, if you will. These local cadres actually, from the very beginning, 40 years ago, started the reforms from breaking rules. And uh, it was very interesting that where one region had a success uh, as a pilot case, it would be rolled out around the country. And that was a very smart way of doing things. If there was a failure, then it wouldn't be spread out. But if there was a success, it could be modeled on. And I think they have been critical in uh, contributing to this remarkable economic rise. Because we have to remember, China was an immature economy with lots of institutional deficiencies. So how do you get over this, you know, rule of law problem, lack of markets, uh, no supply chains, well, the, the local government uh, was an essential force uh, enacting that, enacting it quickly. And if we look at today, it's the same kind of principle where the decentralized economic mechanisms, the local officials will help enable companies and entrepreneurs uh, to overcome barriers, remove red tape, maybe help them get loans from banks if they're a promising company, uh, give them cheap land help them attract talent, coordinate supply mm-hmm. chains. Really, the, 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 they call themselves the one-stop shop right. uh, when it comes to attracting good, promising entrepreneurs. So one phenomenon that we observe in China is that, first of all, China has the second largest number of unicorns uh, in the world, second to the U.S., but they're scattered all around China, not just concentrated in Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen, for example, but in second-tier cities like Wuhan, Chengdu, you know, lots of cities that many people have never heard of. And um, these very, very entrepreneurial local officials will create things like global quantum avenues in Hefei or support these top EV companies or autonomous vehicle companies, really the whole lot. And the it's a very let, let me ask you to yeah. let me ask you to use that example because you, you yeah. you've used it before to a very good effect. The, you've mentioned that city twice, um, the provincial capital of Anhui, mm-hmm. Hefei, uh, how it courted one of China's major EV makers, NIO, mm-hmm. uh, and then went on to build this, build Hefei into basically a center for EV production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole sort of ecosystem, you know, converged on, on, on there. Maybe that, that's a great example to maybe look at. Yeah. 
Um, so Neo is one of the top three EV companies in China, and it was on the verge of bankruptcy after it was listed on Nasdaq. But the Hefei government said, you know, move your headquarters uh, to Hefei. And by the way, there's a something called the headquarters economy now. Uh, move your headquarters <laughs> to the to the maybe the second tier city or wherever it is, and um, they helped them coordinate supply chains and got them loans from six state banks. Took a twenty five percent stake. And within a year, Neil's production grew by eighty-one percent. Its market cap went from four to a hundred billion dollars at its peak, and the local government of Hefei cashed out within a year and made a killing. Yeah, but but more importantly, it really helped build this mini Silicon Valley. Coordinated these manufacturers and battery makers and control systems, and and the same government did the same thing for quantum companies. Uh, so now there's a global quantum avenue, and you know they they said, well, look, you know these companies, there were no private investors who were willing to invest in these companies because they simply thought they were not commercially viable. And look at what happened: the same government uh, supported, actually decided not to invest in the domestic subway system. I'm not sure that was the right thing to do, but instead used the funds to stake a, a, a LCD display company that now has. Taken over Samsung as the world's best, all wow. in a local little government of five million people in China, and you can imagine how many mayors there are running around doing that all over China. I heard once from an investor friend of mine that Suzhou, which is a beautiful city known for traditional gardens, has thousands of autonomous vehicle-related companies, and again, yeah. they 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 are building these high-tech parks. And so I think that you know this is a very vibrant, dynamic, very interesting, but also complex interplay between government officials and entrepreneurs. And some people would ask, okay, so what what's in it for the local officials, right? Why are they doing right. this? Why are they helping the companies? And so this comes back to the unique political economy condition of China. So these local officials all want to be promoted, and they want to be promoted to the higher run and potentially the central government in China. Mind you, that all our last、uh, leaders in the past、uh, have all been provincial heads before they've taken on leadership roles.、Yeah. So that's that's the、uh, promotion. But how do you get promoted? Well, one way, and I'm not saying it's the only way, but very very important way is showing your capabilities through the economic performance that you you make in the in the city. And by helping local local companies, you you build an entire. Industry, but also a retail and service sector, right? Even the real estate that these local officials own are worth more because of these agglomeration effects and multiplier effects, and so their their incentives are all aligned. So often people ask, "Oh, but why don't these officials just help SOEs?" Well, the answer to that is they want to help the most promising companies, not、right. the companies that just have connections or give them some small kickback. That's nothing compared to the fact that they can build a major city like Hefei and then all these jobs. They can, of course, they want to pick the the right ones. So actually, in this sense, there is a lot of the right kind of incentives aligned, and a very important one to prevent corruption, to prevent kind of these corrosive linkages between business and government is local competition. So governments、mm-hmm. compete with each other. Local officials compete with each other because look if. If I exploit my firms in this region, well, the good firms will simply flock to my neighboring region and score points for them. And at the same time, there is rotation of the local officials 
And right now it's on average two to three years. So that seems pretty short to me, but this prevents these local officials being from completely embedded in this local network and all these problems. And and you asked, what are the downsides of this model? And I think there are, there are a few yeah. pretty prominent ones. One is there's a lot of waste, inefficient investments. I mean, come on, you know, what do local officials know about picking companies, right? So right, that, right. that has been the case uh, in the past where they're throwing money at companies that simply failed. But again, this is an evolving concept and model. So the newer iterations is the local officials are working with fund managers who know better to pick the right companies. And they basically are used as a lever to, you know, to, to raise funds, social capital to invest in these promising companies. They are uh, stepping back in terms of their their role in these companies. Now there are limits to how much subsidies, not subsidies, but how much financial support you can give, limits to the equity amount that local officials can have. So these are iterations. But I think lastly, I think a very big one that we've seen on the macro level is local protectionism, right? Yeah. I want to protect my companies and I don't want any other companies from other regions who are successful to come into my region and steal their market share. So that's a really big problem that suppresses competition. And I think uh, the government has identified that as a very big problem, the uh, political economy model, and have come out to encourage more collaboration or or build these mega areas, you know, Tianjin, Hebei, whatever, these these big agglomeration kind of regions to, to collaborate. But there's also the local official debt problem. So I think there are plenty. But we have to ask the question, on the whole, was it positive on the whole for China in that particular developmental stage? And I'd say absolutely. Because yeah, otherwise, yeah. things wouldn't have happened so quickly, like you mentioned. But in the new era, is this still so necessary when institutions become more mature and the markets work better? I, I think they need to step back. Hmm. So electric vehicles, they're an excellent example, as you know, we talked about them, Neo and Hefei. But they're also an example of another major argument in your book, that the, the power of the state in combination with the power of private enterprise can really kind of drive China's success by allowing system-wide changes to be implemented very quickly. So we saw that EVs, you know, went overnight from China, has, is now not only the biggest consumer, but also the biggest producer of EVs. And that wouldn't have happened but for very forceful government intervention. Can you talk a little bit about that, about um, where you see, you know, China's ability to wield the, the, the heft of, of state power uh, in you know, to to affect changes in the macro economy. Yeah, China's state power is quite unique. And I would say the state power or the state capacity lies in its ability to mobilize uh, national resources very quickly, its ability to allocate, allocate resources, but also I put there allocate losses as well. It's not all pretty, hmm. right? Oh, no. Whoever has to lose has to lose. And that's that's just the end of it, right? And, you know, you can say that's effective and expedient, and I think it does achieve that purpose, but it's also potentially also unfair. Um, and in the resources that it controls, the land and the licenses and the keys to pretty much everything. So it is pretty unique. Um, but the EV is a good example because China rolled out, the Chinese state rolled out 4 million EV chargers around the country. In the U.S., right. there are 140,000 
And that makes a huge difference uh, to wanting to spur a new greenfield technology. And if you look at China's technological success, it's primarily in greenfield technologies, not the ones where the Western countries have a latent advantage right. of three years of accumulation. But how did that happen? Well, I think the state has played a primary role, whether it's allocation of finances to, again, coordinating these supply chains uh, to make this all a productive network. And so that's China's state capacity. But then there have been also downsides of, you know, remember the semiconductor big funds, uh, corruption scandals right, and these right. inefficient investments. People think, oh, this model doesn't work because, you know, what does the government know in terms of supporting uh, industries, picking winners? Um, the government has never been great at picking winners in anywhere around the country, uh, world, right? Oh, right. Um, right. Uh, exactly. But um, they have been effective in providing the infrastructure and complementary factors in nurturing these successes, and they will continue to do so. I mean, if we look at the Western economies, we can say that, well, the government hasn't done enough, really, uh, so that it has produced 50 years of stagnating wages in the U.S., uh, potholes on the streets, and not enough support uh, for the companies. If you look at the U.K., there's absolutely enormous talent, but there's no infrastructure and industrial capacity to turn these great ideas into multi-billion uh, dollar companies. And one could add, uh, argue that there's a lack of state capacity in the majority part of the world. And China doesn't suffer from that, but it suffers from other problems of too much state capacity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that going forward, and this is not something that the leadership is not aware of, the fact that markets should be playing a bigger role and that market mechanisms will ultimately be better for the economy. And if you look at the innovation ecosystem, right? Innovation is an ecosystem. It's not just a yeah. bunch of trailblazing stars uh, where we attribute to whom we attribute these great inventions, but it's the national labs and industries uh, connection with the universities. And a very interesting historical episode that we often forget is that between Japan and the US, the technology competition during the 1980s. And actually the US uh, was inspired by the Japanese innovation model that connected the industries and national labs. And they passed their own two legislations that allowed professors to patent their intellectual property. Right, and, right. you know, to take the, sh the, the old kind of ideas off the shelves in national labs and make them into commercial success. And that led to the boom of the internet uh, and to other technologies in the 1990s. So that's when the state actually did something really positive. And they should continue to play that role but hands off in terms of picking the winners and trying to uh, make strategic financial decisions on behalf of the companies. But I don't really think they're doing that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Could you let's talk about state-owned enterprises. So in my time in China, beginning in the late 80s, I, I think I was like a lot of other people who'd grown grown up you know, in, in the States and lived in China as expats or as returnees. And I, I got in the habit of kind of reflexively taking whichever side seemed to be more supportive of, of market liberalization. And so that was kind of at odds with my political instincts in an American context, maybe. But but mm -hmm. there I was in Beijing, always rooting for the private sector, always, you know, kind of accepting this, frankly, a kind of cartoon version of state-owned enterprises where I assumed they were kind of like those state-owned restaurants that I had to eat in, and, you know, the surly waitresses. And you'd ask them if they had something, they'd always go, mail, <laughs> 
<laughs> um, but your your book paints a much more nuanced picture of SOEs and helps to undo that caricature. Uh, what did we get wrong, and and how should we be thinking about what the modern state-owned enterprise is these days? Well, first of all, there's evolution, constant evolution, and this is one thing I would tell the readers to always watch out for China. It's constantly adapting. And because of competition, things are changing all the time. And SOEs were outcompeted by private enterprises during their rise in the 1990s. And that's what forced them to change. Along with, by the way, joining the WTO, which actually, unlike popular perception, forced China to change thousands of laws, including disciplining SOEs and making them more modern corporations. And look, you know, the productivity convergence of the SOEs with the private sectors was quite astounding in the intervening years after the reforms. But again, never going to be quite where the private sector or private companies are because the goal is not solely to maximize economic performance and profits. Uh, they have other, let's say, responsibilities and missions, including carrying out uh, the national projects, whether it's infrastructure or the Olympics or you know, supporting the financial system or supporting companies, other companies when they're needed to or building stuff or, or undertaking innovation. But I think it's pretty clear to the government that they're not great innovators and the private sector is doing most of the heavy lifting when it comes to innovation, but they have other responsibilities. So I think the way to look at SOE is they are going to dominate in the strategic industries mm -hmm. where uh, the government has restrictions on competition, but only in a few sectors. And there's going to be continued reforms, so prevention of state-owned monopolies being taken over. But we're always going to see them around because as yeah. part of the political economy model, the government needs to be able to turn to some institutions and to be able to rely on them to carry out these momentous projects, including look at the Belt and Road, right? Uh, if you want, you know, based on the market mechanisms, private participation, that's they're limited in how much they right. want to participate. So they'll be around. But I just don't think that they should cloud the whole landscape, uh, the economic landscape, which is primarily driven by the private sector. Yeah. 70% uh, of the wealth belongs to the private sector. They provide 80% of the jobs, 70% of industrial output, and 80% of the innovation. And that's going to actually increase over time. And I think it's also misleading to think the private enterprises don't have a bright future in China. I think it's very, very clear to the government that they are needed. And especially when the economy is in such a deplorable situation, they are going to have to do all the work. But it's a matter of TJ assets that will be controlled by the state and being able to call on Team China when it's needed. So part of what they need to do, what SOEs need to do in, in dire economic times, is they have a responsibility kind of social welfare and job preservation. And I mean, I, I've heard it argued that when China when Beijing props up these SOEs, we shouldn't just think of it as throwing good money after mm -hmm. bad and mm -hmm. creating gigantic NPL mm -hmm. problems. But mm -hmm. we should we should imagine this as sort of state directed lending by state owned banks to state owned enterprises mm -hmm. to ensure social stability, to prevent, right. you know, massive, you know, unemployment and, and, and to keep these families alive. Exactly. And and there's also been a lot of consolidation, right? There have been lots yeah. of market consolidation driving out the smaller, poor performing SOEs and uh, reducing some of this uh, unnecessary competition or monopoly power. But 
it's always it's all evolving and changing, but they're not going to disappear. So I, I mentioned just now bank lending. Um, let's talk about China's financial system. I guess I would point to anyone who suspects you of being too rosy about China to <laughs> definitely read that chapter as a corrective. Uh, there are a few topics that you address in that chapter, and I want to highlight just a couple of these things. But first of all, all you mentioned early on in our conversation about the disparity between China's you know quite robust overall GDP growth and its awful stock market. I think it, you said somewhere in the book that if you had invested a dollar in the stock market like 20 years ago, you'd have a dollar today. Yeah, a lot of dollar Whereas, back, know, nothing. Yeah, yay. Uh, which feels a little long in my portfolio sometimes. So, but anyway, uh, but, but you know, let's we'll, we'll talk about what the reason is for um, that. I mean, I, I know, for example, that the, it's just totally dominated by retail investors, right? I mean, that's why the betas are so large, mm-hmm. why yeah, these gigantic swings, why you have to have these circuit breaker mechanisms. Because if you didn't, the swings would be even crazier, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, well, first of all... It's 80%. Yeah, well, uh, the majority is retail investors, like you said. You know, I think the government and the people both have their own challenges. This is why we have this really whimsical financial market. Um, I think in the stock market um, performance per se, uh, there's a selection issue companies mm-hmm. have to register and be approved by the uh, uh, governmental authorities and they often do not choose what's good for them long term strategically uh, make make and rather make short term decisions so that they can be listed and then once they're listed um their this the returns on investing that stock drops by half compared to other chinese companies that list abroad in hong kong or the us that should do very well um, right. So there's there's a problem with the selection mechanism, but also what do they do after they're listed? You know, Chinese corporations, and I'm not saying that's not changing, but in the over the period we're talking about, I mean, they were doing crazy investments, right? They were, you know, pharmaceutical companies were buying golf courses and buying EV cars. I don't know. They're they're just yeah, using yeah. that that to to either lend to their friends or partners or uh, lavishly spending on things that are not related to their core business. So there's a real corporate governance issue also, which is making these returns look very poor. But also coming back to the, the household and the government side, I think there is a paradox. The government wants to protect the retail households. Mm-hmm. So by protecting them, they, they try to control the stock market. I mean, how do you control a stock market? It's like pushing on a on a spring, the more you try to push on it, the more it bounces around. Uh, that right. kind of volatility is often created by the uh, the very goal to suppress volatility, like the circuit me- mechanisms that you mentioned, or trying to stop the, the stock market from overheating or or cooling, uh, asking Team China to buy up these stocks. All these, what it does is that it doesn't really help the retail investors. They never learn, uh, and right. they need to learn about long-termism. They need to learn about, they need to be punished financially for these speculative investments. And because the Chinese government don't want uh, don't want them to suffer in the short term, they always try to put these kind of, uh, they, these, they, they implement these interventions that make things a lot worse. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it's kind of a, a, a very, a, a big paradox. So I think the financial system is where all the chaos is really. And if you think about the shadow banking system and all this lending, 
the thing is, for every action, there's a reaction. So government puts in a policy, there's always going to be somebody else trying to um, make money out of that restriction or try to get around it. So some of yeah. these specific mechanisms that are aimed to protect the market, lots of art arbitrageurs are making money to the point that it's so ridiculous that some people actually go between Hong Kong and Shenzhen carry actual cash to, to yeah. you know every day that they can make money. So there are lots of these quirks that are explained by the government interventions uh, in the financial system. I want to get into shadow banking in just a bit, but you know I think I want to talk first about real estate. Uh, I think anyone who is even glancingly familiar with China's economy knows how utterly dependent local governments are on local land sales, and and how you know in general how incredibly dependent China's overall economy is on the real estate sector. We are. All aware that this can be, and in the past has certainly been, a source of, of potential danger. Uh, help us to right-size this and help us to understand what's going on with the, the real estate market. Because on the one hand, you know, you have just so many resemblances to the 2000s in the United States when you had this crazy asset bubble, um, you know, just out of the global financial crisis and the Great Recession. But, you know, you, you cite a lot of reasons why you don't think the, the bubble will pop or it hasn't popped so far. So help, help us to understand. I know that's a huge question, but... Uh. <laughs> I'll try to answer briefly, but just look at the data and try to figure out, do we really have a massive bubble like the one we had mm -hmm. in the US, like the one we had in, in Japan that led to the lost decade, uh, the bursting bubble? This is a serious question, a serious issue, right? Very important. But the data doesn't suggest China has a massive bubble. Uh, in the sense, if you look at outside of the top four cities, um, mm -hmm. income growth and property sector growth, property prices were basically aligned. It is now true that in Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, these cities, the housing price outgrew the income growth. But housing price is an asset price that is forward-looking. So yeah. if you actually think maybe one day Beijing and Shanghai would become the uh, global metropolises in the world, and their prices are going to be a certain level, that price is going to show up in today's prices. So that's one thing to keep in mind. It's a forward-looking element too. And maybe you can say that- Also, yeah. also these, cities are, these cities are national markets yeah. too. You know, no matter who you are anywhere in the country, if you're somebody with money, yeah, you'll want like to London. own property. In, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have Brexit right, and right. London high, and prices are still that high, right? So, so whatever the reason, it could be, it's a forward-looking. You can say that maybe these purchasers were too optimistic about their outlook, but there wasn't. There is no evidence of a massive bubble, and certainly no evidence of a massive bubble popping. Even if we look at the recent events in the property sector, yes, volume, volumes have contracted, investments have contracted, prices haven't really come down to the degree of thirty percent to fifty percent as we've seen in other real estate crises. And you got to ask fundamentally why that is. And I think one thing is, if you look at the demand, I think there's still pent-up demand. First of all, urbanization is a little more than halfway done, and everybody wants to have an apartment in the city. That's just how Chinese people are. And so that's one big push. And also owning a property boosts your eligibility as a bachelor or a bachelorette, you know, it can go in either direction these days. <laughs> um, but it's a sign, a sign of, of status. So the renting kind of principles hasn't really still taken hold all, all over the nation. So, but you can also say that there's some trends that su suggest that this pent up demand is no longer going to hold. 
Look at the number of marriages that happened in the last year, 7.6 million only out of, I don't know, 300 million millennials, new marriages suggesting people want to delay marriages or not get married at all and not having children. So that's a negative trend on pent-up demand. But there's also, this is where the cultural elements also matter. It's an intergenerational kind of decision-making when it comes to purchasing a house. It's not just the young generation putting in their mortgages. It's like everybody's helping, right? Your parents, maybe your grandparents, your couples, your spouse's parents, all putting that money. So the affordability is also there um, if we think about this uh, generational thing. So I think there are these complex mechanisms. I just want to say the bottom line is there's no huge bubble in the making there's, um, and there's no huge bubble collapsing. I, I'm a little bit pessimistic about the real estate sector because, you know, it counted broadly speaking for 30% of GDP. And there's now a political intent to rein in the property sector because, well, it's caused anxiety for the middle class, caused anxiety for the new generation. Who knows, maybe even explains why they're not wanting to have children, right? So um, all of this uh, suggests that the the future of real estate looks pretty different from what it was in the past. Um, But I I don't see this China as becoming a Japan of the 1990s. Again, not because there's a huge bursting of an overpriced real estate, which is not really the case all around the country. But there needs to be a path adjustment to a new equilibrium where demand uh, equalizes to supply and prices readjust. And hopefully that will be smooth, that transition, so as to not cause too much chaos in the economy. But there will be a transition, but again, not a huge bursting. Also, you know, there were not all these sophisticated, you know, uh, bundlings of mortgage, mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps and all these these financial products that, you know, caused if Bear Stearns and then Lehman to collapse. And you point out in your book that even were there some analogous event, if, if Lehman or, or if, if some bank in China uh, were distressed like that and it were a load-bearing wall that looked like its collapse might take down other walls or the whole structure, that Beijing wouldn't allow that to right, happen, right. right? You know, th- this is what's different between China and uh, a Western capital society because, you know, financial crisis ultimately, to some, a crisis of confidence. And uh, that can be backstopped by the Chinese government, uh, because the Chinese government can simply order the state banks to come out with a plan and to not have these state banks default and bail out whoever needs to be bailed out and assure the society that there's no confidence panic so that people don't go and start to withdraw from their banks. Right. And that kind of level of coordination is simply not among the possibilities and options for the U.S. And as, as you mentioned, as I described in the book, there are not that many linkages, financial linkages and financial networks between a hedge fund and Goldman Sachs with another counterparty bank that makes this a highly transmissible but also, if you look at the household leverage, it's true that household leverage and mortgage borrowing have increased quite substantially in the last 10 years or so. They're still pretty low compared to other yeah. other countries. So I, I don't think it's a financial crisis kind of problem when we think about the real estate. So this, this eagerness to prop up failing banks or failing companies or this willingness to do so, doesn't that, I mean, what, is, what prevents that from being, you know, a textbook moral hazard problem, though. Well, there are moral, real moral hazard problems uh, in China, but you know they think there are other ways to punish them, right? 
They'll get rid of the CEO or the chairman, and some might even go to jail, and there will be huge reputational loss. Again, it's not they're not being held up at the highest level of accountability as the moral hazard issues in the U.S., but they also believe these are uh, real punitive measures. But I think they make the decision on the whole. It's more important to save the entire economy and the financial system rather than to make an example out of a bank. Uh, so that people avoid making the same kind of mistakes. They make that overall judgment. So why then did they allow Evergrande to to default on on its its bond debts and, and to get into such incredibly bad shape? I mean, why couldn't they have, as you suggest they would do in other cases where moral hazard raises its ugly head, why wouldn't they have just put Xi Jinping in in jail and then make his creditors and all the home buyers whole? Yeah, that's a that's a great a great question. Well, one is, does any everybody understand very clearly what is going to be a systemic crisis and what's not going to be mm-hmm. a systemic crisis? I'm not sure that these officials know what is going to cause a systemic crisis. And I think that the degree of how much Evergrande mattered and how much it spread, that shock, was also underestimated. Uh, that's number one. Number two is Evergrande is a private enterprise. And this also came at a moment where private enterprises in various sectors were coming under attack uh, for all these uh, supposedly uh, less than you know rational and reasonable behaviors uh, they've been uh, conducting. And it was uh, maybe right. there was ought to be it was thought to be made of an example, just like DD and other companies. Uh, again, they're backtracking, but uh, there has to be a very strong signal that the policy intent is there. But I don't think that these were, they, they believe that they were systemic triggers. Now, as you rightly pointed out, but they could be. And uh, there are different departments in China. That's the thing that we have to understand. The security de- de- department is not the same as the economics department and the financial department overlooking the capital markets, which is not the same department as the foreign ministry. And they all go about doing their own thing until it clashes. And then it clashes really, really big. Then the leaders come in and coordinate and say, okay, what are we going to prioritize? But before that happens, they're all going to move in these parallel, somewhat, you know, headquarters, uh, uh, co- conflicting uh, matters. And so the way we ought to see the real estate, the Evergrande, you know, these could be also different departments making decisions. You know of what you speak, because I know you've done a lot of work with CBIRC. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a great section on in your financial chapter about the shadow banking system, which we mentioned just a little bit ago. Uh, again, I think you just do a great job of, of complicating it, of clarifying what you call the dark doppelganger to the banking system. So give, give our listeners a sense of, uh, first of all, what all counts in your in your mind as part of the shadow banking system, because I think most people don't necessarily think of wealth management products that are that are issued by banks as as being part of shadow banking. And they instead think of like P2P lending and pawn shops and that sort of thing. So again, pros and cons of the growth of the shadow banking sector in China. Yeah, China's shadow banking also looks a bit different from the shadow banking in the U.S. that led up to the led to the global financial crisis. Shadow banking is also much broader in China because I think the mm-hmm. formal financial system is so dominated by the state banks that it, first of all, left little room for other players to participate. If we look at China, again, a very economically well-performing economy with not many financial institutions of all sorts like asset management companies and insurance companies and rating agencies, all of which make a really important financial ecosystem, that's lacking. 
So when you have these state banks dominating the financial system, by the way, one number that is still surprising is that 10% of aggregate social credit comes from direct financing for firms. That means capital markets, only 10%. That's a very small number compared to the US. And that's because the state banks dominate. So you had lots of other players wanting to play a bigger role. And credit was a very important driving force for the economy after 2009. So you got a a lot of these, let's say other players, let's say small and medium-sized banks, the regional banks, wanting to compete with the big banks. How do they do that? How do they attract more depositors? Well, they're going to issue these, you know, wealth management products with a supposed uh, implicit guarantee of a certain rate that's much better than the very, very low uh, interest rate you get in stashing your cash in the bank. And and then how was that wealth management product invested? Well, it went into areas that was prohibited by the government, meaning real estate or certain kinds of infrastructure projects or things that were considered sectors that were discouraged. So you had all kinds of players. You know, that's just coming coming from the regional banks. Then you had these trust companies that wanted to make more financial returns, and then they were able to garner a depositor's money and then went into high return but highly risky sectors. And then you had the depositors also to blame, right? They did not do their careful due diligence, and they went to buy uh, products that they thought were safe. And uh, they, you know, the, a lot of that went into property. So you have lots of players in this game trying to overcome or trying to skirt these regulations. And that's what happens in China. The more regulations you have, the more skirting there is. Yeah. And this is directly triggered by a particular regulation on how much uh, banks can actually lend out. Uh, these kind of restrictions led to this great blossoming of uh, financing of, uh, off-balance sheet. And that grew to this unbelievable, exploded really, to this unbelievable level. And you look at the local governments, they are also an important player, right? Local governments had their own objectives. They wanted to undertake these grand infrastructure programs and then invest in their companies. And they did an off-balance sheet. They did it through these local government financing corporations, which were actually uh, supposedly mm-hmm. corporations, but really they were injected land assets as collateral so that the local governments can borrow more, again, to skirt right. the central regulation that they can't borrow. And so you have all these players participating in this hugely, as you can imagine, complex, complicated, convoluted, very exciting financial system. And even companies, companies that were not supposed to make certain kind of investments were investing in real estate that had nothing to do with a core business. So the point here is everybody's in the game together. Everybody's in it together. Don't blame just the government. There are the entrepreneurs, the companies, the households with all where their own respective motives. But I think it just goes to show that the formal financial system is kind of a mess. It's it's still antiquated. It's not efficient. It doesn't channel credit to the real economy where it's needed the most, like small, medium-sized companies. They really need the money. And even today, the cost of capital is enormously high for them. And how are they able to borrow when the state banks only want to lend to the state companies. So this created this shadow banking explosion, which um, in the last few years had been curtailed and contained because of these uh, regulations on, on that sector. But at some point, it was a landmine filled with risks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So let's step back and look at China in the global economy, which is yet another thing that your very ambitious book tackles. And I think this is a really interesting chapter. The system that you describe in China domestically, it works, as you say, because of this deep integration of the party state into the functioning of the economy. That's all well and good. But China is also a nation with deep economic ties to nearly every other country on earth. I mean, I think the overwhelming majority of countries on earth have China as their top trading partner. The problems arise because other national economies see China's state participation as an, you know, an unfair advantage. And you make it clear that you perfectly understand the resentment that this breeds uh, over state subsidies, over, over capacity creating gluts of steel and other commodities, uh, you know, of industrial policy, preferential treatment of Chinese national champions, uh, China's use or abuse of, of its designation in some forums is still a developing country. Uh, so, you know, it gets to have its cake and eat it too. A lot of a resentment. Uh, nobody expects that, you know, you are going to be able to offer one turnkey solution to this longstanding intractable problem. Uh, but you do make some really good suggestions about what China should do. I mean, and to be clear, you, you place a lot of the onus very much on China, right? But what should China do to, to realize the, the problems that it's causing for other countries in the global trading system? Look, you know, the China shock is over. It's a one-time shock and it's pretty much done. But it seems that the world is still hung up about that one-time shock that nobody can change. And I uh, find it pointless to be arguing about what are things that were prominent in the old playbook. Now, my, my book is called The China Playbook to distinguish it from that and to show that there's evolution. So the industrial subsidies right. have subsided for the large part, almost also because local governments and governments are, are, are you know, there's not that much money after COVID uh, to do all these things. And they have also under, under, understood the impact of oversupply and these glut and the problems with these subsidies. So th these are really no longer that all that relevant. Actually, if you look at the U.S., now there are industrial subsidies uh, coming out. <laughs> The Inflation Reduction Act, yeah. Exactly, or the CHIPS Act. And maybe they're saying, okay, maybe this thing actually does work to some degree. Um, but I think that's very much part of the old playbook. And also in the data, you see that foreign companies on average, systematically speaking, get more subsidies than domestic private companies. Uh, so that's also very interesting because uh, on the whole, even though we hear about anecdotes about foreign companies being discriminated, and, and there are for sure examples of that, I think on the whole, local local governments really wanted foreign companies to be present because of the all, overall positive energy and spillovers to the rest of the economy. So they were actually encouraged. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. also this manipulation of exchange rates, which is no longer really the before or trade surplus, intellectual property transfers of technology, all of that, again, I would argue is stuff that happened in the past, but they're not that relevant. And if we keep on focusing on that, we're going to miss, miss out on China again. What I mean by that is, you know, intellectual property protection is absolutely important. This is one of the suggestions I make. Um, this is not only good in terms of uh, protecting foreign companies, but this is actually really much needed in the domestic economy because right now the stealing or misappropriation right, right. is also happening um, uh, among domestic companies. And how do you get China to become an innovation nation? You need to have very strong uh, intellectual property protection. And right now, there's a comprehensive layout of the, the legal superstructure. But it, when it comes to implementation, again, that's another issue. And I, I just I want to say that, yes, there are these grandiose designs, but how is it implemented at the local level is very important. Sometimes there's a disconnect between the two. 
Um, the second is, I think China has to recognize that, yes, the developing nation status, how much can you argue for that? It's no longer this developing country like other developing nations because it does have some of the leading edge technologies. Yes, it does have still 600 million people who are not middle income. But still, you know, you have Beijing, Shanghai as rich as Seoul and uh, other parts of the rich nations club. And you can use, you know, Gansu as an example that China is a developing country because there's a huge amount right. of heter- heterogeneity. But the leading edge uh, uh, technologies are now in China. And I think this is, you know, it's it's no longer needed. This trying to win every battlefield, trying to gain every advantage that China did. That's no longer necessary. You can lose some. And, uh, you know, it's not a bad thing to be have a slower but higher quality growth, go up the value chain and then pass some of the other um, parts of production onto other countries and behave um, more like, you know, a um, well, I have to say that if we look at, you know, China's uh, record on a changing behavior after it was brought to the WTO courts and lost, it was pretty effective. And I think this is the way to go about it. Take the Chinese to court. And by the way, the U.S. violated the cases that U.S. violated in the WTO over that period was twice as high as China. So it's not as if China is the only disputed um, trading partner here, but take it up multilaterally. But also look forward. What is China doing right now? It's using its huge, ferocious domestic market competition to further its innovation um, it's yes, government is important. There's certain kind of um, uh, government support and subsidies and high tech, but that's also what China and the U.S. is doing. Uh, that's not really in the contentious areas. But make yourself stronger. But the bottom line is China needs to change, but everybody has to make their, their themselves stronger. If I look at the U.S., all the internal problems, a lot of the majority of them don't have anything to do with China. By the way. Uh, these jobs that were displaced by the Chinese, they would have been displaced by the Vietnamese or uh, the Mexicans and others. It's just that China came too fast, too rapidly, without any preparation. And by the way, different governments reacted very differently. Europe, European governments did not at all suffer from the China shock to the degree that the U.S. did, simply because their government did more to help their workers transition. That's right. That's right. And you make that point very clearly in the book. So you've talked about how China doesn't need to win every single area. I mean, they can afford to lose some of these, but there are some areas that it refuses to lose. And uh, we're talking about specific areas of high tech where they have suffered from export restrictions that are very key, that are the, the, the pillars of uh, the future economy that China really wants to win. So your book talks a lot about how the Chinese government through carrots, through sticks, through signaling where the funko are, you know, where the government is going to be providing really good, strong tailwinds. They've been able, in a very short time, to reprioritize entrepreneurs away from consumer internet, away from e-commerce, fintech, and, of course, edgy tech, which is gone, <laughs> and toward hard tech, like and especially semiconductors. We talked about some of the problems with the big fund and things like that. I- I'm not sure when you submitted your manuscripts, but... I'm guessing that things have probably gotten a little worse on the export controls front since you did, especially when it comes to semiconductors, you know, managing to bring the the Dutch fully on board and the the South Koreans and the Japanese. Presumably, you know, a few months later, things have changed. So what is your assessment now of how China is faring in certain areas of of, of very critical, strategically critical high technology like 
domestic semiconductor manufacturing in, in that. Region. I think the latest development is that as time goes by, China's just simply taking this as the new normal, meaning nothing's going to really surprise them yeah. that all that much when it comes to technology restrictions. And therefore, they're also prepared to do what they need to do. And there's going to be a response. And there has been a response. I think in the short term, of course, many companies will suffer. I think a lot of it is also psychological um, uh, of the reduced expectations of the future. But I would also not underestimate how important this domestic, all-encompassing innovation ecosystem plus industrial supply chain matters. And what I mean by that when it comes to particularly semiconductors is that if you look at the Japanese example in the 1980s, um, one argument for the rise of semiconductors was the rise of the Japanese electronic industry. And that was the downstream clients that demanded these chips and that very proximity and very quick feedback um, was very important for the rise of the semiconductors. And if you look at these downstream players in China today, we're talking about the EV car companies, autonomous vehicles, the AI companies. Again, you know, this is a landscape of thousands and tens of thousands of blossoming companies that, again, that proximity to a chip uh, factory or chip uh, company, as opposed to having semiconductors company all the way headquartered in the US or in Europe, uh, I think is also an advantage. And um, in the longer term, so this demand, this huge redirection of demand away from American companies back to Chinese chip companies is a huge boost to these semiconductor companies. Uh, they say China imports more in terms of just chips value than oil, right? All of that is now redirected to domestic uh, uh, suppliers. And then the second thing is, how much do these restrictions actually matter? Now, again, I'm not an industry expert, but the people I've talked to have said that uh, China can pr produce these mature chips, 14 or 28 uh, nanometers, and they are potentially sufficient for the kind of consumer products like cars, maybe not cell phones, but cars. And then when it comes to military, um, that's all a whole different issue. Um, but so, and, and it's spurring this huge, you know, incentive to support the industry, but also coming up with alternative design features to circumvent these rules in terms of new technologies uh, to leapfrog. And that's what many companies are also working on. So I think it's it's unclear what's going to happen. I certainly don't know the answer to this. I think don't underestimate these un unexpected events that will evolve. And don't also overestimate the power of these restrictions. They're actually not all encompassing. Um, from what I hear, there are lots of holes, loopholes. Mm. It's also very restricted to a certain set of companies. Let's hope that the U.S. does not do more, because I think if it does, then it's going to affect many of its other companies as well. So it's always uh, very painful on both sides, but it's not as restrictive as one might think. And one interesting view from the Chinese side, I think that should be emphasized is, look, you know, if the American companies want to drop the Chinese market, it's their loss. And honestly, you know, it's the second largest yeah. economy in the world. And really, in terms of growth, it is the bright spot given all things into consideration. And if they want to forego this market, well, it's actually a mega loss for America companies. Ke Eugene, thank you so much for taking so much time out of your day to speak with me. 
I have so many more questions I would love to ask you, but I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, let me just remind everyone once again that the book is called The New China Playbook Beyond Socialism and Capitalism. And if you want to find out what this new China playbook contains, uh, because it's becoming you know clearer and clearer, uh, that, that's just, I won't spoil too much here, leave something for, for you to read, but uh, it's available wherever fine books are sold. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, speaking of recommendations, let us move on to recommendations. But first, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by The China Project. If you like Seneca, if you want us to keep bringing you great guests like Ke Yujin, then support us by becoming an Access subscriber. Besides the fabulous Daily Dispatch newsletter, which is already you know a one-stop shop for China-related news, you also get access to all of our paywalled content on The China Project's website, along with, of course, access to this podcast early on Monday afternoons on the East Coast of the U.S. instead of having to wait till Thursday. So show your support, become an Access subscriber. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Kuyu, what do you have for us? I love this book, starting with the title by Tony Judd, a historian, a historian uh, called When the Facts Change. Mm. Uh, so that itself uh, should draw us the readers. And look, you know, um, this book really is so prescient in uh, in talking about these core issues and core challenges that people today, including inequality, the return of socialist incentives, the inequality issues, uh, what's the optimal degree of government regulation and restrictions, and you know the impact of technology. So I, I love Tony Judd as a historian, as one of the most acute, profound thinkers of uh, of the past uh, century, and I love this book uh, starting from the title. Yeah, he, it's he's great. I've read his other collection, one of his other many collections of essays uh, called Post War. Mm-hmm. My uh, favorite. Just, yeah, one yeah, of my yeah, favorite. It's, yeah. it's, it, I have not read When the Facts Change. Yeah. This looks really good. I'm going to pick it up right away. Uh, I love him too. I think he's just, he's just, I didn't know you were a big history buff. Oh, I well, you know, we have to, uh, we have to look into these to understand uh, ah, uh, China, economics, China and the world. History really matters. Yeah, yeah, it was a real great loss when we when he when he passed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What an incredible person. Totally. I don't. know. You had a chance to meet him, I imagine, because you. No, 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 no. I have not. But his post-war is one of my favorite history books. I mean, he's such a profound yeah. and, you know, um, visionary. Really. Absolutely, absolutely. So my recommendation isn't quite as as weighty. Uh, I, I want to recommend this Broadway national touring production of one of my favorite musicals ever since I was a kid, 1776, oh. uh, which I just caught Sunday in Durham. Uh, this was like something I watched again and again on VHS with, with my little brother when we were kids. So I flew my little brother down from New York. You know, he's a Broadway musical producer. Wow. I just wanted to treat him to, to you know, he's, I stay with him all the time. So um, we went and watched it together. Both of us were just like, you know, Wow. Crying the whole time. It was just I have to so go great. see it. I have to go see it. Uh, yeah. yeah, you should definitely see it. Um, you know, it's 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 a... It's you know it's kind of quote unquote wokeified in that you know the cast is mostly bipoc and black and it's almost all female or, or non-binary um, and but it's great I mean it 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 has total fidelity to the original book and libretto uh, and I just I loved it I cried like a baby um, looking forward to that yeah I love oh it's so kids. great yeah. it's so great um, and you know just just watch the original movie uh, sometime there's every every song is is a masterpiece and, uh-huh. and the story is great and it, it really holds up super well today I mean you, you look at it today 
and and so many of the issues that they were wrestling with, um, you know, the indelible scars that that the, the founding fathers left on our society are very much there and talked about in this in this production. So check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I've been waiting to find a new uh, new music, new musical production to all right to 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 have inter- to entertain myself. So I look forward to that. Yeah, watch yeah. it for July fourth. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you once again. Uh, Thank you. What, what a delight it has been to talk to you. Thank uh, you so much. And... It's been great fun from my part. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for giving me so much. Yeah, so much time and giving my book such great prominence. I really appreciate that. And um, it was uh, it's great to have your platform to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. The Seneca Podcast is powered by the China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at the China Project, and be sure to check out all of the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.